You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, this is uh, Jay Harwich, the latest installment of Major Illinois Podcast. And my special guest is uh, Dwight Gooden. Dwight, 1985 is a pretty good year for everybody, especially for you. And this month's August, a lot of good anniversaries. Uh, August 20th, you struck out 16 to uh, beat the Giants 3 nothing, and you go over uh, 200 strikeouts in the second straight year. And the first National League pitcher to accomplish that and the first hit Terp score in the 1950s. What do you remember about that game against the Giants, Doc? No, man. Thanks for having me on your show, Jay. First of all, um, we go way back. Um, that game was a special game. I was aware that I was going to break Herb Sports, um, the record. Um, normally, during the course of the game, you try not to look at things like that. But when you get so close, obviously, you go for it. And, you know, playing against the Giants that game, obviously, you want to get the strikeouts and you want to break the record. And 85 was a special year altogether. But breaking that record and then, like you say, the first guy since the 1950s to do that, um, coming up in just my second year, was definitely special. Um, it was a personal accomplishment, and it was great when my they stopped the game. The fans gave me a standing ovation. Like the interns came up to congratulate me. They try to keep your composure to finish the game. But once the game was over, as you always did so well, happened the media during the press conference. It was great. I mean, great accomplishment, and I'm um, just something that I can always look back and share with my my kids and my grandkids. Yeah, Chuck, I mean, look at, you know, a lot of great pitchers in Mets history and baseball history have had great years, but probably nobody could compare to what you did that year. You know, won the triple crowd of pitching, 24-4, 24 wins, um, 153 ERA, 268 strikeouts, and you're the fourth pitcher in the history of baseball to be 20 games over 500 with an ERA at less than two, and Sandy Koufax is one of those uh, – uh, you know, his four pitches. That's pretty good company. But, Doc, looking back, you come off of the year in, uh, in, in 1984, 17-9, rookie of the year. What were your expectations going into the spring of 1985? You know what? It was um, a situation where I was still like the youngest guy on the staff, but just considered as the ace of the staff coming in my second year. There's a lot of expectations from, you know, the team, the media, and expectations for myself. But I remember... Born in the spring training, and all you kept hearing was sophomore jinx. Be careful the sophomore jinx. Guys for their second year, you know, the league is on to these guys. They've done the scouting reports. It ain't going to be as easy or you're going to have more struggles in the second year. And then on top of that, I remember David and Mel wanted me to work on a changeup. They have a third pitch, and I didn't like throwing my changeup. I was never comfortable with it. So David got to the point because I wouldn't do it. Every other pitch, he said, you got to throw a changeup. I would do it. And I think the hitters caught on to with the pattern, and I had a horrible spring in 85. And they just were talking about sophomore jinx, sophomore jinx. And part of that kind of innovated me because once the season started, David said, you're right, I changed up this garbage. Put it on the shelf. We're not going to use that. And going into that season, we had just got Gary Carter. I had a great um, spring with Gary, you know, just talking about things we like to do. And the first game I opened up, my, it was my first big league um, opening day start at home against the Cardinals. Fifth grade, got another stage, and that's when Gary hit the home run. And that game, you know, anytime it's opening day, it feels like a playoff atmosphere because it's sold out. 
the all the free game ceremony and all that stuff taking place. And I was actually excited about it. And I, mean, I knew going to that year was going to be different with the hitters, you know, but also after my rookie year, I had experience myself where I learned the league better. I was more comfortable um, in that. And having Gary, an also a catcher, an experienced catcher, played a big role in my 85 season. Doc, just talk about Gary for a second. Uh, you know, he, I remember him. You saying all the pitchers said the same thing. They didn't really care if you went 0 for 4. And, and Gary kept going 0 for 4. As long as the pitchers won, he was happy. What did he mean to such a young staff for you and Sid and, and, and Ronnie Darling? I mean, he treated everybody differently, didn't he, all, all the pitchers? Oh, he did. Gary was great. Um, and there was nothing against, you know, I mean, we had Mike Fitzgerald, um, John Gibbons, these guys, we had a trainer, Ron Hodges. But having Gary come in, I also saw a veteran catcher, but a very competitive guy. And Gary's great dealing with the five different personalities. You know, and that's what a catcher had to have. He has to communicate, and he has to know those guys because each pitch is different. Like with me, sometimes, he always wanted me to pitch like the score is one nothing. Even if I was up 10 nothing. Like Alex here, Fernandez, sometimes you got to pat him on the butt and let him know it's going to be okay. Um, Ron Darling, he had a challenge him sometimes. Ryan was very smart. Bob Ojeda, a veteran pitcher. So Gary was great with dealing with different personalities. And, and you're right. Most times I've had catchers where if they're not hitting, they really don't want to talk. And you can see the way they sit behind the plate. Gary didn't care if he was 0 for 4 or he was in a slump or whatever. His main objective was getting the best out of that pitcher that day. Um, very competitive. Real fiery guy. And the thing I like about Gary the most was between innings, if he wasn't hitting, he'd sit by you and he's talking about what we're going to do the next inning to um, face those three guys, how we're going to pitch him, and what he's thinking, and he want to get feedback from you as well. And also, off the field, we spend a lot of time together. And just communicating, so he gets to know you on a personal level as well. And you don't see many catchers do that, but Gary was one of those guys, it didn't matter if he was hurt or whatever, he would do whatever he had to do to make sure he was there to play for you. Jack, I know another guy who meant a lot to your career was Davey Johnson. When Davey uh, was hired in 1983, you know, he's a brash guy, didn't really need a job. He's a millionaire, a real estate guy, but he re not took a chance. He's good enough for somebody who struck out 300 batters in 1983, not, not to take a chance. He was not adverse to putting a, a young guy like yourself in a rotation. When I know from firsthand experience, a lot of people in the front office didn't want you to come up. And what's your feelings about Davey? Oh, you're right. Davey was a great guy. I'm glad he's doing well. And the thing is, I met Davey in 1982 when I was 17 years old. I got drafted, and I started my career in Kingsport, Tennessee. Davey was a roving instructor at the time. And the one day he came to Kingsport, I just happened to be doing my bullpen work, and Davey came over, and he was challenging me. He was like, let me see a fastball down and away. All right, let me see a curveball down and away. You see a fastball up and in to the right. I mean, he was showing me different things. And it just happened that day, I was on top of my game and throwing the pitches and showing him. And he was like, man, that's pretty amazing. You sure you're 17? And then the next year, I went to Lynchburg. And I got to a slow start. And David was coaching in Tywood. It like, got to a slow start. I threw off 4-3. But then I turned my season around. I ended up going 19-4. I got called up to Triple A for the playoffs in the World Series. I pitched great in the playoffs. And then I won the final game in the World Series for David. They said whoever he managed the following year was taking me with him. And so I said, wow, at least I'll be in AAA, you know, as I mentioned, and I can take that. George Denver to resign, and David got the job. And I remember that, that winter in November, I was in the construction league in St. Petersburg, 
And David was down there and just joking. I said, David, remember what you told me? He said, yes, don't worry about it. I'm inviting you to spring training with non-rushed occurred. You're coming with me. And so I did get invited to spring training. And I remember all doing spring training. After we start, the media would talk to me and say, yeah, it's just great, but they say you probably won't go to double-A or triple-A because of your age. They don't want to rush you. Um, so again, and then the next day, I would go into David's office. I said, David, he going to triple-A or double-A. He said, don't worry about it. Let him talk to you. Come with me. And I heard that all of them playing training until the, the last day we were playing it, um, in St. Petersburg. And David said, um, congratulations. You made the team. You'll be my number five starter. Yeah, and that was one of the greatest things I can have to see with my father because, you know, playing baseball was my father's dream and then it became my dream. But David was really the reason why I made the team my first year. And, I mean, my first spring training in 84 as a rookie because of the non-roster because of my age. The office wanted me to go by AAA for just because of my age. But David fought for me and David believed in me. Yeah, you would have justified his face, Doc. So in 85, you go 24-4. You're still the youngest pitcher at 20 to win the Cy Young, and you're still the youngest pitcher that, you know, uh, August 25th of this month, you you won your 20th game. And I know you've had a, a good relationship and watched closely, uh, you know, our, our current Cy Young award winner, Jacob deGrom. Uh, last winter, you gave him the, uh, the his Cy Young at the Baseball Writers' Dinner. Well, what, do you, what makes Jacob deGrom tick, Doc, in your mind? Oh, Jacob's awesome. Alfred and Guy cool guy, great demeanor on the mound. And what I mean by that, you don't know if he's up or one nothing or he's down to nothing. He's the same expression. He takes the ball like the other day, he pitched, but it's better game, but he found a way to get through five innings to keep the team in the game and get the win. You know, great pitchers find a way when they'll have the good stuff to win or give a team a chance to win. That's what Jacob does. And he has a lot of pressure on him because he's the ace, and when he takes the ball, he's expected to win. He's expected to go seven innings to keep the team in. And he's he a selfish challenge. And it seems like it's almost impossible. It seems like you're better and better every year. I just like his competitiveness when he's having stuff on the mouth and he's a selfish challenge. And, you know, he's one of the great pitchers he ever pitched on the mess. Yeah, as you, as you were, Doc. You know, uh, 85 was a lot of good things happened. And as crazy as it may seem, we win 98 games and don't get in the playoffs. We go down to the last weekend. If the memory serves me correct, we're in St. Louis. And Friday night, Stroy hits a home run up the clock to get to Kent Daly. You won the next day on Saturday, and we and we lost on Sunday, and we wound up winning 98 games and being in second place by three games. But unfortunately, no wild card back then. Just imagine that. You win 98 games, and you have to go home. And, you know, back then, it was only the two divisions, and we came so close to doing that. And if we'd have had a wild card thing back then, I'd say it would have been the playoffs from 84 to at least. 90. Uh, we had great teams, but unfortunately, it wasn't the way. And once you get in the, like, you hear people all the time say, you guys think you left um, rings on the table. I mean, you, you know, Jay, it's hard just to make the club. And once you make it, a lot of times it's the hottest team to win, not always the best team. Nope, and nope, right, nope. if we could have got in, who knows what could happen? Because we had a great pitcher staff, and pitchers well, were win, but unfortunately, they didn't have the wild cards back then. Yeah, I know one rule you're probably not happy. The new rule is that. Pitchers don't hit anymore. Guys hit home runs occasionally, get a key hit, win a game for yourself. But what do you think about the fact that the pitchers don't no, hit I anymore, don't. Doc? I, I, I don't like that rule. I, I wish they kept. That's, a, that's what separated the National League from the American League. Now there's really no difference with the DH. And I like the National League strategy more when the pitcher hits because, you know, it's more of the managers. It's like a chess match. You know, the double switches, the button, in the run, doing different things. 
and our pitching staff, we take a lot of pride in our hitting. On the road, most take us out early. We work on bunting, work on hitting. A lot of times we pick two days of band practice. The day before you're pitching, you get to take band practice, and the day you pitch, you take band practice. We really work on that. And so I'm not seeing that now. I guess it's great for the game, but I'll definitely miss that. I like the pitches yeah. to hit, but I, I understand where they're going. Um, hey. There's been a lot of rules changes, but hopefully they don't change too many. Yeah, I hear. Hey, Doc, before the COVID uh, swept the nation, you did a lot of uh, charity work visiting kids at Hackensack Hospital, which is a great hospital in northern New Jersey. Hopefully when this dies down and when we get back to a little bit of normal, do you hope to continue to visit the kids in the, in the hospital? Yeah, it's hard to get back to that. It was a great thing. I was going there. I really enjoyed it. A good friend of mine, David Jerry's, um, got me set up over there. And what I do is go visit these kids. And, it, and, it's, and it's heartwarming. You know, you see these kids working at the machine. They're battling cancer. They fight their life every day when they should be playing sports or going to school with the other kids. They're having fun with their friends. But unfortunately, they're going through the struggle at that time. I know what that's like. And going there and just trying to cheer the kids up for a couple of days. And if they're able to get out of the hospital, you know, I take them to a Yankee game or a Met game whichever way they like, is to get them out and show them that there's somebody there that really do care for them and want to help them any way they can. And even with their parents, when they come, you want to distract them a little bit from they're going through, you know, you watch some games that's on TV, you talk with them and the other siblings as well. Just to kind of cheer them up, you know, it's tough for them at that time. And once the, the COVID stuff is all over, I like to go back there and continue what I'm doing. I really like it. It's, it's great to go there and spend time with kids and their families just to show them that, you know, I do care. Hey, Doc, so in your career, you, you won a Cy Young, a rookie of the year, uh, made all-star teams, uh, uh, you know, pitching a pitch no hitter. But for me, you were the best eater I've ever sat next to at a, at a table, Doc. No question. We, we had this restaurant we used to go to, Ron's Japan in Chicago. Doc used to have the Rusty Saab and, and Vinny Greco, some of the other guys. Lobster tail appetizer. The only problem is you have to eat the sauce. It was like a nine-block sprint back to the hotel. Oh, yeah, yeah, back. I saw you definitely couldn't go to the movies afterwards. I saw you had to go back to your room. Sometimes you didn't make it to the room. You had to stop off. It was, yeah. Those were fun times. We were good team meals. I mean, who's a better eater, Doc? You were rusty. You both could eat. The thing about rusty I could never understand was, I admit, I got two, two dinners, but I would get like a Pepsi. Rusty would get two dinners and get a Diet Coke. I don't understand where the Diet Coke comes from. Yeah, yeah. This is great guy, I cherish those moments. I miss those moments. We had some great times. Yeah, we was going to eat a group of guys. I mean, it's like that. I went to Mets all the time, and the 86 team is kind of special for me because I was younger. You know, we used to, with all the different personalities, you guys let me blend in, and it, were, it was a good time. It was really uh, it was yeah. a really good time to be around. And uh, uh, listen, I just wanted to say I appreciate your time. You're a good friend for 40 years. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, and Hopefully, when this is all over, I'll get a chance to see you soon again, Dwight. Oh, definitely, Jay. Keep up the good work with your podcast, and I cherish our friendship. Me too, love Doc. You, and I look I forward to seeing you, too, Doc. buddy. Thank you for, Doc. Thank you for bearing with us today. Oh, yeah. My fun pleasure. Anytime. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 